Okay, what do we got? Let's see. Which email am I on now? Letters. Oh, yes, letters from Nepal. No, that's done. Timing. Yep, got that one. Okay. Oh, right, right. Made it to India. Okay, here we go. That's uh, that's the one. Uh, made it to India, leaving Nepal. Two incredible months. Yada yada. Okay. Wait, am I really done with Nepal? I mean, I didn't really talk much about my trek, the Annapurna circuit. I mean, I made reference to it, but I didn't really go into it. No, no, I've spent a lot of time in episodes on Nepal. I, I even wrote a song. Dalbat. I still have a long ways to go in my journey and the series. I gotta get through this. B- besides, it's not like I'm talking about everything I did on my trip. I mean, I mean, there's plenty I haven't covered because there's just so much. And besides, I have a right to some privacy too. I mean, I'm not gonna tell you guys everything I did. And well, I'm also not up to date on my international law and statutes of limitations. So the point is, I'm sharing some of my stories and, you know, some of my adventures, but not everything. Still, the Annapurna mountain range was so beautiful, and I, I met some cool people, and I, it was almost three weeks of my time. Shouldn't that deserve more than just a passing reference? But what can I do? I mean, I have to read the next email. Don't I? Or do I? Wait a minute. Ladies and gentlemen, esteemed members of the J-Luck Club, please take your seats and silence your cell phones. That is, unless you're listening to this on a cell phone, then don't silence it. That would completely be counterproductive and you'll want to hear this. Honey Roasted T-Shirts is proud to present a very special, exclusive, members-only episode of the J-Luck Club. Anna Pernapalooza! <laughs> An extravaganza filled with music, stories, comedy, and juggling. Please sit back and enjoy the show. The Annapurna Circuit and Trekking in Nepal. There are many incredible opportunities for trekking in Nepal with a range of durations and difficulty levels. The Annapurna Circuit has often been ranked as the best long-distance trek in the world, with its variety of climate zones ranging from 600 meters to 5,416 meters, and the cultural variety from the Hindu villages in the foothills to the Tibetan culture of the Menang Valley and Lower Mustang. The Annapurna Mountain Range consists of numerous peaks between 6,000 and 8,000 meters. The trek usually takes between 15 to 20 days, depending on where trekkers begin and end the journey. In recent years, many trekkers short on time will now cover the first leg of the journey on newly developed roads to shave off some days, as well as flying out from a small but growing mountain airport after completing the pass. But 20 years ago, a young backpacker opted for the full experience. Dalbat in the morning, Dalbat in the evening, Dalbat in the afternoon. Before we move on to our next segment, we have a special announcement to share with all of you great members of the J-Luck Club. Jay Schneider, Bobby Hennebury, and Cord Savvy are proud to announce the release of Dollbot Diddy, Episode 8, check it out, on iTunes and other music providers. That's right, no more replaying Episode 8 again and again, skipping ahead to minute 28 and 57 seconds. You can download your very own copy of the song and listen to it whenever you want. 
included in your playlists. It's even available in common social media apps and those wacky TikTok and Reels videos. Coming November 2020. Look for it on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you get your music. Man, I'm really hungry. Catch you later. The Annapurna Circuit, Part 1. Okay, here we go. Day 1 of 20. Day 1. After this one, 20 more to go. Okay. Day 1. I woke up. Oh, God, this is going to take forever. This is going to be more challenging than the trek itself. But I mean, how else am I going to tell you about the mind-blowing barren landscapes of the Tibetan Plateau, the gorgeous snow-capped peaks of the Annapurna Mountain Range, the battles for trail supremacy with the herds of sheep charging through, the large quantities of dalbot which I consumed to fuel my journey? I, I, I guess I'll just have to power through. All right, uh, where was I? Day, day one. So, in my view, travel is often as much about people as places. Wait, what was that? Okay. Day one, I woke up and... You know what? It's all about people. Did you hear that? Is that just me? Okay. Um, but in the end, it's really all about human connections. It's about the relationships. It's about people. Oh, right. It's about the people. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, members of the j Club, I now present to you People of the Annapurna Circuit. Part 1. Jay. Jay was born and raised outside of Seattle, Washington, in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. When he was 18 years old, he moved to California, where he attended the University of California at Berkeley. Go Bears! With a vague plan to somehow make his way to Japan after graduating. Jay did move to Japan, with a vague plan of also visiting other places while in Asia. After three years, Jay left Japan with a vague plan to travel around Southeast Asia and South Asia, which included a specific plan to stop in Nepal. In Nepal, Jay planned to participate in a two-week volunteer program with a vague plan to do some trekking or something afterwards. After getting a number of recommendations from travelers he met, Jay decided on the Annapurna circuit. Bertrand I met Bertrand in an orientation meeting in Kathmandu the night before we left for our work camp. He was, and probably still is, a French-Canadian who had taken a leave of absence from his job to travel. I spoke in a previous episode about how my travel wasn't a huge sacrifice. My work contract had come to an end, I didn't have a home or a job or anything else going on, whereas Bertrand was one of the folks I met who did take a big risk. He decided he wanted to travel for a year. So he went to his boss and told him about his plans. He asked if they would hold his job for him. And they came back and said, no, we can't do that, but we can give you six months. He thought long and hard about it and told them, thanks, but no thanks. The trip was too important to him, and six months just wouldn't be enough for what he wanted to do. He would rather risk losing the security of a job to return to instead of compromising on his dream. That is bold. Even though they offered him a safety net, he was willing to forego it, all so he could go on his journey. Now that I've let that sink in, and please don't lose the spirit of making bold sacrifices, so the fact is the company came back to him and said that they'd let him have nine months, which, not being a total idiot, he jumped at. So while he was willing to give it all up for his trip, having a nine-month leave of absence was not a bad deal at all. So maybe the lesson here is actually never limit yourself by not asking for what you want. Never know what you can get. Anyway, the first night we were doing our introductions with the group, I mentioned how I hoped to do some trekking or something after the work camp. 
See vague plan to do some trekking or something above. And Bertrand said he did as well, so it was agreed we'd tackle the Annapurna circuit together. Bert was a fun guy with a great sense of humor and we had some good times. But there were some personality differences and points of conflict, the kind that become more apparent and inescapable when spending weeks attached to that person. And Bert made some choices on the trek which I found disruptive to the group and I probably didn't express my frustration very well. And so the upshot is, even though we followed up the trek with a rafting trip and shared rooms in Pokhara and Kathmandu, we did travel between cities separately because he wanted to take the luxury bus. Well, we didn't exactly have a teary-eyed goodbye, and I think we were both relieved to be free of each other. Gopal Gopal was our guide. Initially, we didn't know if we needed a guide. Bertrand and I were experienced and competent hikers, but after talking with others we had met, they talked about how a guide can add to the experience, sharing information, background, and stories, as well as helping to handle the logistics of lodging in the tea houses along the trail. A guide knows the villages and which there may be vacancies or accommodations and good places to break up the journey and takes away that hassle so you can truly enjoy the nature around you. It's also a key job in local tourism, so paying for a valued service can also help the local economy. Our first interaction with Gopal was a bit rough. During the volunteer work camp, one of the leaders, knowing we wanted to go trekking, introduced us to one of his friends who was a guide and worked for a trekking outfit in Pokhara. We met the friend, sorted out the trek we would do, and settled on our plan. The morning of the trek, we showed up early at the trek office and saw our guide, but also Gopal, whom we had not yet met. Bertrand seemed quite confused and unsettled as the company explained that our guide's knee was acting up and this other person, Gopal, would be taking us instead. Before they even finished explaining the situation, I'm pretty sure I figured out that this original guy, I forget his name, I didn't even write it down in my journal, but it's really not important. Anyways, that this original guy was never going to be our guide. He was just the guy who was getting us in and getting his referral kickback. Bert seemed very confused by this for the whole day and really upset by this. Once it did set in, it took him a while to warm up to our new and true guide. For me, I didn't really get the warm fuzzies from that other guy anyway, so I was just eager to get moving. Spoiler alert, Gopal was freaking awesome. He was a funny, kind, and generous dude, and because of him, our trekking experience was all the better. Of course, he knew all the logistics things, the best places to try and stay, the best routes, where there were detours or other options, but he also told us about different areas through which we were hiking, the people, the history, and so much more. He was also a genuinely good person. There were other trekkers on the trail, and of course they had guides and sometimes porters. One night when we were nearing what would be the highest part of the trek, as you can imagine, it was pretty cold, and there was a dusting of snow. He noticed some of the porters in a group were wearing only flip-flops, and he went to talk to them and the guides to try and figure out why they didn't have proper footwear and what we could do about it. Though we didn't see too many large groups on the trail, most seemed to be couples or pairs like Bert and I. Well, Bert and I were a pair, not a couple. As we hit the pass, we did encounter some larger groups run by large companies. All their porters and guides had matching shirts, so yeah, clearly they were next-level corporate. On the day we were descending from the pass, we were in good spirits, laughing and skipping our way down, and and we spotted a porter from one of these companies sitting on the ground, cold and shaking. Gopal sprints to him and asks what's going on. He was cold, shivering, and we immediately got him water and energy bar and surrounded him to warm him up and increase his body temperature. Once he seemed to be stabilized, Gopal drops his pack, picks up the porter's pack, and starts sprinting down the mountain. Bert and I split the load of Gopal's pack, though, to be honest, he traveled light, so it was nothing compared to the massive gear that the porter had been carrying, and we waited with the porter until he seemed to be able to continue. 
Remember, this guy was not only not feeling well, he was now concerned for his livelihood and that he wouldn't be able to do his job. Anyway, we sprinted down the mountain after him. I was ignoring the slight pain in my knee, which had been bugging me for a couple of days. Gopal had tracked down the company, found the leader, and totally ripped into him for leaving one of his porters behind. Gopal had no qualms about yelling at companies that weren't treating their people right. He was a stand-up guy. Also, in the final days of our trek, we took a detour from the trail and went to Gopal's home. There we met his family and the village, and we spent the night. Again, a great experience, memory, and one that would not have happened had we not connected with Gopal. As beautiful and breathtaking as the nature of the Annapurna mountain range is, without Gopal, the whole trip may not have been as magical. And we had a lot of fun. We were laughing, joking, having deep conversations. Even after our trek was done, we hung out in Pokhara a few times. He is definitely one of those people I met on my trip, which enriched my experience, and I remember fondly to this day. We did keep in touch for a while, but several months later, his free email account bounced back my messages. I think he had limited access to it, and, well, I haven't heard from him since. I hope he's doing well. He was definitely a critical part of that trek, my trip, and my life. Shock. Shock was our porter. Bertrand and I were both anti-porter. Being independent, self-reliant, competent, and experienced hikers, we didn't need some other human being to carry our belongings. We can take care of ourselves, thank you very much. We made our stance clear. Though others, fellow travelers and locals, not just the company from whom we were hiring the guide services, explained that it helps the local economy, that jobs depend on it, and don't we want to enjoy the beauty instead of huffing and puffing in an endurance activity? Finally, Bert and I relented, but we decided we would share a porter. Don't worry, there is a strict weight limit on what a porter is allowed to carry, so we didn't double up on him, but we reasoned we could give some of our stuff to the porter while carrying the rest in our own packs. This would keep the Nepali economy afloat while also keeping our manly, independent egos intact. Once again, shock added so much to our experience. From a practical sense, he would sometimes go on ahead and secure accommodation for us, so we would be insured a place for the night. This was a huge help, as there was a few times we were turned away and had to hike farther to find a place. This probably would have happened on most nights if we didn't have an advanced team. Also, Shock had fun with us as well. Though his English was limited, it certainly was better than our Nepali, we joked around, we laughed, we played cards, and we had a good time. Of course, this fun led to one of the more stupid decisions I made during the journey. One afternoon, we decided to hike to the top of a nearby peak. This was during our free day, where we did not go further on the trail so we could properly acclimate to the altitude. The four of us and a few others we had dragged along were hiking the switchbacks when Shock jokingly started charging straight up the steep mountain. Accepting the challenge, more like taking the bait, I began to charge up as well, racing Shock to the top. A bit about me, sometimes I get myself into a stubborn, no-retreat-no-surrender mode, and I was in it to win it, nothing would stop me. And here's the thing, remember we were at elevation, so as I charged up the hill, breathing heavy, my lungs started burning, desperate for the oxygen that was noticeably lacking in the high-altitude air. Shock had already given up, but with the top in sight, I locked into stubborn, I mean stupid, mode of not letting anything stop me, not even a lack of sufficient oxygen. So I did make it to the top, and I had my hollow victory, but I spent the next several hours trying to recover. I enjoyed the scenery and the beauty of the mountaintop, as well as the conversation and the company of my friends, but not fully as I was battling lightheadedness, burning lungs, and a body that was extremely upset with me. That night I tried to rest, sleep is hard at altitude, and curse my stupidity, worried I had jeopardized my ability to keep moving forward and that I would hold up the group. Anyway, I, I woke up and felt recovered, but I was kicking myself. But look, I've made this about me, and this section was about shock. The four of us bonded well. As an example, 
I also love language in general and how phrases evolve, so bear with me here. One of our first days, we'd stopped for a brief break, and the four of us were enjoying a spectacular view of one of the snow-capped Annapurna Mountains. My bladder full, I, I lamely joked, I'm going to go enjoy the view over there, gesturing to some bushes where I went to relieve myself. Within a day or two, this had turned into our code for, I'm going into the bushes and empty my bladder. It had gone from a lame joke, just a matter-of-fact, straight-faced expression. Part of our language, just our trekking vernacular. But the memory that sticks out most to me is the day when Shock said to us with a straight face, I go view, and went off into the bushes to take care of his business. We'll be back after a short break. Chord Savvy. You know it as a place to learn guitar and learn your favorite cover songs. And of course, the, sure to be, international hit, Dalbot Diddy. But did you know it's also a great place to listen to singer-songwriter interviews? That's right. Head on over to Chord Savvy on their YouTube channel. Check out the Chord Savvy Singer-Songwriter Studio on YouTube. Enjoy Bobby Hennebry's interviews and talks with singer-songwriters from around the world. Check out Chordsavvy.com for more. Also, look for Chordsavvy on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Oh, and download Dalbot Diddy. Welcome to Chordsavvy.com. Rock on. Thank you, thank you. Hey, all right. Hey, good to see ya. Hope you're enjoying the show. Yeah, it's been some good stuff, hasn't it? So, how's everybody doing tonight? Woo! Yeah. What's up? How's it hanging? How you shitting? What? Am I getting a bit too personal, too intimate? I'm just asking how you're doing. So I just got back from three weeks trekking around the Annapurna mountain range. Yeah, you been? Anyone? No, no one else decided? Hey, I'll just spend three weeks walking. Just... So during this trek, there were definitely some days where, well, let's just say things weren't coming out as planned. I mean, like when you went to the toilet. <laughs> that life saying, you get what you put into it. Well, I assure you, what I put into me was not what was coming out on the other end. <laughs> on the trail, oftentimes you might just get up and go for what you thought would be a normal trip to the outhouse, and well, that color and consistency was just unexpected. <laughs> so each night on the trek, we'd end up at these tea houses, all huddled around the tables at night, chatting with other trekkers, getting to know each other, talking about our days. The first couple of days, People might have had a little something strange going on, but they tried to be discreet or polite or hide it, you know, just excusing themselves to sometimes run, and I mean literally run, to the toilet. <laughs> By the end of the first week, everyone was a lot more open with the shared experience we were all having, culminating on the evening when my trekking partner decided to declare to the room, I officially have diarrhea. <laughs> yeah, he did that. Chris, a bartender from Hawaii who was at the table, asked him if he wanted a wanted a some sort of certificate or ceremony to formalize things. <laughs> anyway, by the second week, everyone was pretty much more comfortable with talking about the inner workings of their vowels and comparing notes on frequency, urgency, color, and smell, and consistency. But by the end of the third week, it just became 
almost a greeting to check in with each other. This had transcended a, a literal question and became more of a figurative inquiry into one's overall state of being. How you shitting today, man? Ah, uh, loose and runny, my friend. <laughs> and this isn't so strange. A lot of cultures have greetings which evolved out of literal questions. In a number of East Asian countries, there's a greeting which literally means, have you eaten rice? In Osaka, near the area of Japan where I lived, it's a historically merchant class town. Their local greeting literally means, are you making money? So there's a precedent in language and culture, and I think how you shitting is as valid as any other greeting. You know, hey man, how you shitting today? Round and brown. <laughs> well, that's better than yesterday when you said, mean and green. You know, I don't know if this is going to catch on or gain widespread support, but when I was in Kathmandu the other day, I saw Chris walking down the street. I shouted, Yo, Chris, how you shitting? He looked at me, smiled, and replied, Solid. <laughs> That's my time, people. Thanks for coming out. Tip your waiters and waitresses. The more you drink, the funnier I'll seem. Thanks, and good night, and enjoy the rest of the show. People of the Annapurna Circuit, Part 2 Wayne I met Wayne on the trail. He was from British Columbia, Canada. He owned a heliski company, and he was trekking the circuit solo. That's pretty much the extent of what I knew about him. Oh, that, and he had a digital camera. That's right. He didn't have to wait days, weeks, or months to see how his pictures came out. He knew instantly. And he could take a million pics of the local kids who demanded he take more so they could see and just delete them later. I remembered the kids back at the peaceful children's home who begged me to take more and more pictures. I had already run out of film, but I just kept snapping away because they were so happy. Anyway, I left with a good impression of Wayne, but it was one night in Pokhara when we bumped into each other and we decided to have dinner that I really got to know him. As I said, he owned a heliski company, so he would take clients by helicopter to ski down the incredible mountains of western Canada. Over dinner, he told me that a few years prior, he had noticed the morale on his team was low. His people weren't happy. So he called a meeting and told everyone, Look, we do heliskiing as our business. This should be the best job in the world. If we aren't having any fun doing it, then why are we doing this at all? So he told his employees for the next year, at the end of each week, they would determine if it was a good week or a bad week. At the end of the year, they would see how many of those weeks were good and not good and tabulate the results. Wayne set a target. He wrote it down, put it in a sealed envelope, and locked it away. And he told his team, if we don't hit that number, we're going to pack it up and shut it all down. After that, every day, the team had a quick check-in with themselves to see how the day was going. If someone said they were having a bad day, the entire team took interest and tried to figure out how to make the next day better. Everyone was genuinely interested and invested, and not just on autopilot each day. Sometimes we get caught up in the inertia of life, and we don't stop to correct problems, or sometimes even realize that there are problems at all. Anyway, this daily check-in meant that by the end of most weeks, the team was in agreement that the week had been a good one. By the end of the year, morale had clearly improved. Everyone was having fun at their job and delivering great service, and they all agreed things were better. Much better. 
So when it came time for the final meeting of the year, Wayne tallied the results and found his team had over 94% satisfaction rate. The data supported what they all had been feeling, that they were not only satisfied with their jobs, they were happy and having fun. Needless to say, the company continued. But here's the real thing. Wayne, who had not previously told his team what the threshold would be, asked them what they thought the target was. Most responded 50%, maybe 60%, or a bit more than half the time. When he opened the envelope and read the number, it was 90%. 90%. He said, if we aren't enjoying this 90% of the time, then why are we doing this at all? Pam and Anne. Pam and Anne were a couple from San Francisco to whom I was instantly drawn because they were from San Francisco. It had been four years since I'd left my heart in the San Francisco Bay Area, so I was giddy to suddenly have this connection to a place I'd called home for five wonderful years. When we first chatted, they sensed my giddiness for my Bay Area brethren, or San Francisco sisterin, and they told me how much the city had changed since I was last there. These were the dot-com days when tech startups exploded and young people descended upon the city with dreams, youth, and a lot of money. The city has never been the same since. We met on our second or third night of the trek. We would often pass on the trail or see them in the tea houses at the end of the day. I ran into them again in my final days in Kathmandu, though they didn't immediately recognize me with my bald head and bleeding pus-covered ear, and we grabbed dinner together. Pam and Anne were not destined to become lifelong friends, but they are a great example of those in life with whom you cross paths for a moment, and it adds color and texture to the experience. The Seattle Couple The Seattle Couple is another example of this. Though I only ran into them on the trail on two or three occasions, they were a really nice couple. We had good conversations with them, even sharing a room together the night before we went over the pass. Similar to my attraction to Pam and Anne, I was excited to connect with people from a place I had once called home. So, in my journal, I often wrote nicknames as shorthand for individuals and groups, or sometimes just initials. In the case of the Seattle couple, yeah, I have no record or recollection of their names. In my journal, I just wrote, The Seattle Couple. What's more is that I can't remember the substance of our conversations and interactions. If I passed them on the street today, I wouldn't recognize them. In fact, I could probably spend 24 hours in a locked room with them, and unless we started talking about our previous travel experiences and happened to talk about trekking in Nepal, we may never make the connection, and that even wouldn't be a guarantee. But I do firmly remember that we shared some moments and, and their presence added to my own Annapurna experience. I've mentioned regularly that it's really all about the people, and those shared experiences and connections come in all forms. The Swiss Couple The Swiss Couple! One of the first few nights on the trek, as I enjoyed a hearty portion of Dalbot, crammed around a shared table in a dimly lit room, I met a couple from Switzerland. This couple, hailing from Switzerland, I dubbed quite unimaginatively, though accurately, the Swiss Couple. Throughout my journal, I refer to them as the Swiss Couple. And yeah, I have no idea what their names are. But the Swiss Couple was not another Seattle couple, nor even a Pam or Anne. I'm not including them here as just another example of a pleasant and brief interaction with fellow travelers in my journey. No, this was more than that. After the first few nights running into each other by chance, we often started walking parts of the trail together, or at least making plans to meet up and have our doll bod at the same time at the end of the day. Also, the higher in altitude we climbed, the less distance we covered in a day as to not gain too much altitude too quickly. The classic practice for acclimating oneself is to climb high, sleep low. Note, climbing high was easy with all the wild marijuana plants along the trail. <laughs> 
So, in the middle of the trek, we would often reach our destination by lunch or early afternoon, and then spend the rest of the day going on a hike to some nearby peak to gain some elevation, catch some views, and then descend back down to our lodging for the night. For the middle part of the trek, we tended to do most of these hikes with the Swiss couple. So yeah, we spent a lot of time together, and we had a wonderful time. Or at least I did. For all I know, right now there's a Swiss-German podcast duo talking about a trip they took to Nepal 20 years ago where this creepy American stalker kept following them around, and, and they're just so thankful they never revealed to him their names or contact information. So, altitude sickness is no joke. It's not about how strong or healthy you are. If you don't respect the altitude, you could end up in a bad way. In fact, we saw two people being hauled off the mountain who were in really bad shape, as in medical evacuation bad. The Swiss couple, Bertrand and I, were already well aware of the dangers of climbing at altitude, being knowledgeable and experienced hikers. And we also dutifully followed the recommended route and pacing for the trek. One of those practices included staying two nights in the village of Menang before going any further. In the village, there were daily safety briefings on the dangers of altitude sickness and, and signs and literature everywhere reminding trekkers of the risks, including death. Additionally, it was strongly recommended that you make sure you spend two nights between Menang and the pass. With our experienced guide Gopal at the helm, we knew this already, and already had a plan for where we would stop the next couple of nights. This was the same plan for the Swiss couple, the Seattle couple, Pam and Anne, and, well, everyone else on the trail. Uh, except Wayne. He was the true rogue who just did his own thing. I'll be honest, I, I was feeling great, and I'll admit I was sure I'd be fine pushing through, but there was no rush, there was no hurry. We were loving the journey. No one was being irresponsible or taking unnecessary risks. We all had a proven plan, and we all had the same plan. Well, except for Bertrand. So our first morning in Menang, Bert complained of a slight headache, and he proposed that we should spend three nights between here and the pass, rather than the customary two nights just to be extra safe and careful on top of our already cautious plan. Gopal, our guide, tried to explain that he had taken hundreds of clients through this trek, taking all the proper precautions, and it was a system that worked. We were by no means pushing it with elevation and being risky. In fact, we were probably being quite conservative with our daily elevation gain. But there's more. Gopal and Shock signed up to work for 20 days, and now this was adding a day. Bertrand's now messing with a business arrangement and Gopal and Shock had no leverage to negotiate. Of course, I know we paid them for an extra night, or actually I made Bert pay for that extra night, but still, Gopal and Shock didn't really have a choice but to either accept it or walk away in the middle of a trek. And they were away from their families, and who knows if this was jeopardizing their next booking. From my perspective, I didn't think Bert was considering any of this. In spite of Gopal's best efforts to nicely explain that he was confident Bert would be okay, he finally gave up because, one, Gopal is a good-hearted, awesome guy. And two, the customer is always right, eh? Shock was really upset about the extra night, and Gopal told me privately later he essentially had to tell him to do the extra night or just go home. Basically, Shock had to choose between his job or being fired. Bertrand's attitude angered me. I wanted to yell, This isn't freaking Everest, dude. You're walking around just fine, carrying normal conversations, and yeah, we all have freaking headaches, shortness of breath, can't sleep, and having to pee 15 times a night in the cold. Suck it up, keep your ass moving, and if you feel sick as we get closer, we can reevaluate. But I didn't yell. I gently gave some cheerleading and expressed the above in a very positive and polite manner, but in the end, my young 20-something self thought that I was losing my easygoing, no worry, no hurry, dude ways, and, and that Bertrand had the trump card. I was the jerk pushing him to risk his health and life. So we changed our plan, added an extra night between Menang and the Pass. Oh yeah, but this is about the Swiss couple. 
So something else that was also pushing me to want to keep moving was that spending an extra night before heading over the pass meant breaking up the band. The Swiss would go on without us. The Seattle couple. Pam and Anne, Chris and Janine, Wayne and so many others. These people with whom we'd shared some great times both on and off the trail would be moving on while we stayed behind. And so I said goodbye to the Swiss couple. You know, I can look through my journal and notebook from 20 years ago and find dozens of email addresses I wrote down. Some of those people became good friends, while others, well, I was probably wondering why I was even bothering to write it down as I wrote it. Remember Susan from the volunteer camp? Anyway, well, the Swiss couple is one I definitely could see myself meeting up with today and catching up over a drink or a good meal or even climbing a mountain and having a present-day friendship. Yet, when we said goodbye, that was that. Until two days later, when I ran into them again on the trail. And then again a day later when we met up for a meal, and then we said our proper goodbyes. Oh, and then in Pokhara, we bumped into each other and then agreed to meet for breakfast the next day, and they recommended the Kaligandaki river rafting trip, and then we bumped into them in a, in a bar another night, but, but at that point, we finally said our goodbyes. Well, until that one day in Kathmandu when we bumped into each other on the streets. Oh, and then that other night, you know, the night when I met Pam and Anne in Kathmandu, and then we went out to dinner, it happened to be at the same restaurant as, say it with me, people, the Swiss couple. I don't know where you are now, Swiss couple, but I won't be surprised someday when I turn a corner and see you guys, whatever your names are. Jay. Laughing and joking with his fellow trekking mates, Jay sprint down the mountain, racing to the bottom, ignoring the slight tweak in his knee. Two days later, when descending from Thorong Pass, his group found a porter in trouble. Gopal took the porter's pack, Bert and Jay split the weight of Gopal's pack between them and added to their own, and they sprint down the mountain. Jay was more aware of the complaint on his knee and his rapid descent, but that would have to wait. They were on a mission, and that was the priority. The next morning, Jay woke up with a knee swollen to double its normal size, but managed to limp, crawl, and grit his way to the next destination. The afternoon excursion to a Tibetan monastery was excruciating, Many observers may have mistaken Jay's committed spinning of the giant prayer wheels as a sign of devout Buddhist practices. In fact, they offered great support as he eased the weight off his bad knee. Jay did push forward, though it took him twice as long as the others to reach the next destination. The next day, the group stopped earlier than planned. Finally, Gopal had a suggestion. Let's get a horse. Though Jay's instincts were to just push through and start a couple hours earlier and arrive a couple hours later each day, somehow Jay set aside his no retreat, no surrender, push on through attitude, and realized a horse was the best option, and a horse was procured for the next day. Though the journey by horse did allow for some relief of the knee, there were parts of the trail so steep he had to dismount and limp through anyway, and at other times the pain simply just shifted from Jay's knee to Jay's backside. Jay may have been concerned by the judging looks of other trekkers, hey, who's this privileged pampered tourist riding a horse while we're walking? But he was too distracted by the worries about long-term knee issues, Jay, who had never had any joint issues to this point in his life, filled his head with thoughts of, is this how it happens? Is this where it begins? The rest of my life limping with a bum knee, talking about that time I messed it up in Nepal? Well, hey, at least that's a better story than I took a misstep in the stairwell during a fire drill at my job at the frozen chicken packing factory. Spoiler alert, after about a week, the knee got better, probably would have been better sooner if he'd just let the thing rest for a day or two, and it did not develop into a chronic ailment. That said, since this time, if Jay ever does twist an ankle, throw out his back, or ever have a day where he's just not feeling 100% physically, he's quick to say, Ah, must be from that time I injured myself trekking through the Annapurna Mountains. 
ladies and gentlemen, the musical stylings of Bobby Hennebury and Chord Savvy. A special thank you to Bobby Hennebury and Cord Savvy. Dollbot Diddy, download it now. Get your own copy of Dollbot Diddy, download it now. Thank you very much for attending this very special, exclusive members only event presented by Honey Roasted T-shirts. Honey Roasted T-shirts, they don't make T-shirts, but if they did, they'd be honey roasted. Check out honeyroastedt-shirts.com for pictures, emails, more, and your link to the Dollbot Diddy. Special thanks to Bobby Hennebury and Cord Savvy for their continued musical support, contributions, and collaborations. You'll hear more in the future. Don't forget, you can download your very own copy of Dollbot Diddy on iTunes, stream it on Spotify, or wherever you get your music. More information can be found at honeyroastedt-shirts.com and cordsavvy.com. The JLA Club podcast will return to its normal meeting next week. Wait, who are we kidding? There is no normal with the JLA Club podcast. In our next episode, I finally make it to India, where I'm immediately welcomed by thieves and scammers. Fret not, dear listeners, you're hearing my voice now, so clearly I survived. Speaking of hearing my voice, if you listen to this podcast, if you visited honeyroastedt-shirts.com and seen the pics of my bald head, or if you've ever heard me tell the story about the time a group of Indonesian police officers gave me lunch and tried to give me a wife, well, you just might be a member of the J Luck Club. Thank you for staying tuned to Journal Extras. Bet you weren't sure if you were going to get it this time. None of this will be on the exam. October 3rd. Stay in Jagged. Dinner. Dull bot. Eat with a Swiss couple. Gopal entertains us with card tricks. Conversation turns towards skiing. The Swiss are very excited. She used to compete. Bert and I go for a climb. Ran into the Swiss couple. Climbed up to 4,000 meters with the Swiss couple. I don't know why it bothered me so. In the larger picture, my whole spirit of travel is plenty of time, no schedule. Perhaps I feared missing the company of our Swiss friends. Menang to Yakarka. Didn't see the Swiss couple. For our afternoon walk, we, de we decide to hit the village of Retor, and we run into, Hey, the Swiss couple! We head toward Letor for an afternoon walk.
We see a number of people we recognize. They say the Swiss couple is out and about. Bert and I decide to head up to a peak. Midway up. Hey, hey, ho, ho, the Swiss couple. We'd meet them on the way down for tea. Ooh, had tea with the Swiss couple. Agreed to meet them tomorrow. Go to monastery and temple. I am in pain. I sleep, hoping my knees will get better. In the evening, I run into Gopal and Wayne. Wayne and I go for a bite. Afterwards, I see the Swiss couple. Swiss couple recommends Kaligandaki tour. They say, yeah, some people for it's all about the people. People schmeeple, I just want the action. Run into the Swiss couple. Hey, I saw the Swiss couple today. Ooh, the Swiss couple. Hey, ran into the Swiss couple. Katmandu. Hey, the Swiss couple. Pam and Anne and I go to dinner and we see the Swiss couple. Oh, met the Swiss couple again. November 11th. Oh, met the Swiss couple. Crazy transition music. I, I guess, you know, at the time I was traveling with that French Canadian guy, Bert, or Bertrand. Bertrand. Yeah. Yes, yes. Do you remember him? <laughs> I do. Yeah, I remember he kept saying, uh, maybe I could meet a Thai girl. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that became kind of a, a, a verbal meme for us. Right. You know, I spent a few weeks with him just as we, we did the, a, a trek and around the Annapurna and we did a volunteer thing. So, yeah, I actually spent you know, quite a bit of time with him. But the thing that still stands out most was he was so excited and you're talking to you guys about Thailand. And so, yeah, I, you know, I, I hope I, I hope it all worked out the way he wanted. Uh, it, it probably did. It's Thailand. So there are four yeah. things or three or four things I remember about Bertrand. One, mm -hmm. he was French Canadian. Two, yes. his name is Bertrand. And three, he, he, the, that's the last, that's the other one. There were three things about Bertrand. I could meet a Thai girl. <laughs> <laughs> Dun, dun, dun.
And now, some juggling. 